talking about sexuality. We were talking about something that can bring up a lot of deep feelings, deep emotions for many of us, some in the manner of um, shame and regret and guilt, and some in the matter of perhaps anger and bitterness and resentment. So why would we talk about these things? Why not just kind of move past this? Or why not just say that there is no ideal, no objective universal standard for sexuality? And that the reason that we might feel shame and guilt is, is because we've bought into this old idea that there's some universal standard for these things. And if we just would get rid of that, then we wouldn't have to deal with shame and guilt and all of that. Well, for one, that doesn't work. It doesn't work if you have been the victim of sexual abuse. If you've been the victim of sexual abuse, you need to know that what has been done to you was wrong in the objective universal sense and not just and you need to know that the perpetrator ultimately stands or falls before God, whether or not justice ever comes in this life. But it also doesn't work for our own sin and impurity and, and sense of, of shame and guilt. More than likely, we know that we have done things that are objectively wrong and shameful. And we need our sin and guilt and shame to not just be swept under the rug and not ignored and denied, but to be actually dealt with. We need an identity in spite of, in the light of, what we have done. In the, li in the light of our sin, in spite of our sin, not in denial of our sin. That doesn't work. And this is exactly what God does. God comes into the world and gives us a new identity, and pursues and purchases a sinful people for himself, and changes who we are. His mercy reaches into the deepest and darkest corners of our lives, and covers every thought, word, and deed, no matter how shameful, devious, or unspeakable. It is completely sufficient and satisfying. And so we ended last week at the end of the service by looking at 1 Corinthians 6, a few verses. I want to begin there before we get into Matthew 19, just to set the stage here on this topic. So 1 Corinthians 6, verse, starting at verse 9, says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. So this is who we all were. Um, I mean, if you doubt, if you, you fail to see yourself in any of those categories, at least you can go to idolaters. Idolaters are those who have worship something other than God, who give themselves to things other than God, and that is all of us. God's kingdom will not include 
will not be indwelt by those who live in rebellion against God, who live, who refuse to come to God, who love their sin and self-rule more than they love God. And that is all of us, apart from God's grace. And yet, as I've heard it said before, there is a glorious but here. There's many glorious buts in Scripture. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified. Washed could be translated made pure or cleansed. Sanctified means you were set apart for God, for the pleasure of God. Justified means you were made right or righteous in His sight. And this is through Jesus and the work of the Spirit. The work of God in Jesus cleanses us from all sin, from all guilt, shame, and uncleanness, cleanliness. Makes us wholly righteous in his sight. Again, it reaches into the very deepest and darkest corners of our lives that we tend to, to push down and not let any light come in. And so from the get-go, especially today, we need a reminder of our identity. We need a reminder that our identity is not in what we have done in our sin. If we are in Christ through faith in his death and resurrection, our identity is not in our sin. Our sin and guilt have been sufficiently and effectively and forever dealt with. We have been made pure as white as snow. We are not our sin, past, present, or future. It cannot condemn us because it already met perfect and satisfying condemnation at the cross. Now, still perhaps we might wonder, well, why do we need to talk about this then? Why do we need to talk about God's ideal for sexuality? If we're forgiven in Christ, isn't that all that matters? We're forgiven and we'll spend eternity with our Creator. Well, it matters because God's ideal, God's commands and will are good. God himself is good and everything that flows from him is good. He's not just good in what he does for us. He's also good in what he calls us to and, and commands of us. And his commands actually show us the, the best, what is good for humanity, what is, leads to thriving and joy and satisfaction. And those who have been truly saved by God's grace are not only commanded to, to live in light of his ideal and his will, but are motivated and strengthened and empowered by his spirit to do so. To make, we are called to make every effort and we are empowered to, with new desires and strength to, to live for him. As I prayed about earlier, we, God's purpose for his people is that we would give witness to him, that we would joyfully live satisfying lives in him, and this includes what we claim about ourselves, about the world, about who God is and what he desires. So what does it look like to honor God with our bodies in the area of sexuality? Here's the big idea, uh, the big picture. God's ideal for faithfulness in our sexuality includes two paths, chastity or abstinence in singleness and faithfulness in marriage. And both of these are equally faithful and God-glorifying ways to live out our existence. So we're going to talk about both of these. We're going to talk first about faithfulness in marriage. Um, 
This will help us walk through some of this, and we're going to be in Matthew 19. Um, this is a passage primarily about divorce. We're not going to talk a lot about divorce, um, but we're just going to use this passage to talk, to draw out a few things relevant to what we're looking about at today. We'll draw out four points. So first, first point, marriage has a God-given purpose. Marriage has a God-given purpose. So look at verses, Matthew 19, starting at verse 3, verses 3 through 6. And Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female, and said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. So the immediate topic here is divorce, but the, uh, the Pharisees are asking, when is it um, legitimate to divorce one's wife? But notice Jesus quickly changes the subject to marriage. You can't understand divorce if you don't understand marriage. If there's no definition or purpose to marriage in the first place, we're not going to get very far in talking about divorce. And so if marriage is ultimately about human happiness, then it makes sense to get divorced anytime our marriages infringe upon our happiness. If marriage is ultimately about human happiness, then it doesn't matter who marries who. It is simply a means to an end of our happiness. As long as it's fulfilling that purpose, then it, then it is. But notice that Jesus assumes marriage has a purpose. He assumes it has a definition, and that this is built into it from the very beginning by God. And so he, Jesus says, let's go to the beginning and see what God has said about marriage. It's not simply a human construct that we can define however we want. Second thing to notice is Jesus begins to explain the definition and purpose of marriage. Marriage is between a male and female. So uh, notice that Jesus kind of goes out of his way to bring this up. The, the immediate question is divorce. And so Jesus says, hey, let's talk about marriage. But he actually goes further back than the institution of marriage, God's creation of marriage, and says, talks about God creation, creation of humanity as male and female. It's not entirely necessary that Jesus goes to this, but I mean, at least in the way we and our culture tends to think about marriage. But Jesus goes back to the beginning and says that the definition of purpose in marriage is dependent on the reality of male and female. Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife? So God made gender and God made marriage for male and female to come together in a unique and intimate way. And God said that this was good. Now, we should assume that these elements of creation, like all elements of creation, will be affected by the fall. We'll have elements of, that, that our experience of them will, will be one of frustration at times. That others' experience of gender and sexuality can and will be frustrating and perhaps 
others' experience will be frustrating different ways that our, than ours is frustrating. And we will come up against the reality that we are fallen creatures. We talked about this some last week. But there's really no getting away from the biblical teaching that God created us as male and female and that God created marriage to be between male and female. Third, marriage merges two into a deep and mysterious one flesh. Look at verses four through six again. He answered, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So they're no longer two, but one flesh. Now, just a quick side note here, an important one though. Jesus here attributes words to the mouth of God in Genesis that in context are simply the, the author of Genesis. Jesus says, he who made, created them from the beginning made the male and female and said, so God said, and yet when you go back to Genesis and you read this, God is not speaking. It is simply the author of Genesis speaking or, or writing. And so we get at a window in Jesus' view of Genesis and the whole Old Testament, I would say, that Jesus views the Old Testament as God's very words. And he can say, well, God said this, even when well, God wasn't really speaking there. That's just the book of Genesis. And so this should help us, convince us, and, and come to our Bibles as trustworthy, as authoritative words of God. So what does God have to say here? Well, we are told that in marriage, a man will leave his parents and will hold fast to his wife. Uh, this term, hold fast, can be translated glue. You and your spouse are glued together. Cleave, fasten. Um, and so there is an element of human will in marriage, right? We commit ourselves to another. We join ourselves to another. Uh, still to this day, this is the essence of most marriage vows, right? We promise to, to be with our spouse through thick and thin. We realize that feelings will come and go. Natural affection will come and go. The, the things that we thought marriage would do for us and the benefits we thought we would get out of it come and go, but we continue to commit. We hold fast. But there's more than this. There's more than this going on in our marriages. And so look at what else God says. The two shall become one flesh. Uh, flesh is a very new, common New Testament word that can mean flesh or body or just human being in general. And so when Jesus comes into the world, we are told that he took on flesh, put on flesh. And so two become one flesh. This means marriage is creating a new body, a, a new entity. Two are merging together in, in a very mysterious but a very deep and intimate way. 1 Corinthians 6 helps us understand this a little bit more, and it helps us understand that 
sexual union is an important aspect of this two becoming one, but, but it certainly doesn't explain everything. It's not the only aspect to it. So one verse from 1 Corinthians 6, and we'll come back to this passage. Uh, verse 16, or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute? Now this, this word, this phrase joined to is the same as hold fast in Matthew 19. It's the same word there. So he who is holding fast to or joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her. For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. Now, think about what Paul is saying. He is clearly not talking about being joined in marriage to a prostitute. Uh, To be very blunt, that's not what one does with a prostitute. But still, Paul can say that because of the mere sexual union in the relationship, the two are joined as one flesh or body, as if married. And so one of the reasons that sex outside of marriage is wrong, is not God's ideal, is that sex does something that brings two people together in a marriage-like relationship. It's not only that you should be married if you're having sex, but it's also that sex itself is joining two people together in some measure in a marriage-like relationship. It's the consummate act of marriage, but it's meant to be included along with the commitment, the holding fast, the glue of faithful commitment. Actually, it seems like our culture is beginning to agree with some of this. Um, I was listening to an author this week who was writing a secular book on sex, and she was saying that the very weak ideas that our culture has about sex, that it's pretty meaningless, um, don't grasp the, the significance and mystery of it. I think our culture is beginning to realize that there is a lot more to sex and its depth and mystery and significance than than we have acknowledged. Jesus then goes even further in describing the significance of marriage and what is going on in marriage. He says, what God has joined together Now, that's quite interesting, what God has joined together. So God created marriage, the institution in marriage of marriage from the beginning, but in some sense, God is involved and playing an active role in every marriage since then. What God has joined together, let not man separate. So if you are married, your marriage is not merely the result of a decision you made. It can't fully be explained by the the vows that you made. You and your spouse have come together in as one flesh. You are bound to your spouse, a part of your spouse, in a way that is not meant to be broken, though in a fallen world it does get broken. Now, to flesh this out a bit... um, This doesn't mean that as two come together as one, that one strong domineering personality dominates and extinguishes the other. And so what you end up with in the 
the union is just really the result and the priorities and the, the, the will of one partner. No, it is a joining together of two. And when you get married, you begin to adjust your priorities and your schedule and your spending habits. You sacrifice yourself daily for your spouse. And this is meant to be an image of God giving of himself for us. You give love and you show um, patient endurance and forgiveness as you sin against one, in one another and you commit in faithfulness. And this is, again, meant to be a picture of God's faithful love and forgiveness and patience towards the church. And then fourth and finally, as we look at marriage, sexual immorality strikes at the heart of marriage like nothing else. Look at verses 7 through 9. They, the Pharisees, said to him, Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? He said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. So Jesus says that divorce and remarriage is akin to adultery. And the reason is because divorce, in this case at least, shouldn't have happened. Because God's ideal is that marriages last. However, he says that there is at least one occasion, and Paul lists another one in 1 Corinthians, that in which uh, divorce isn't akin to adultery. And here, that is when there is sexual immorality. Now, this term used for sexual immorality can refer to a variety of sexual sin, but here in context, it specifically means adultery. And so in this situation, Jesus is saying that divorce is not necessarily sinful. There might be good reasons to stay, still stay faithful in a marriage. It can be a wonderful picture of the gospel, but you would not be committing adultery by getting out of it. So to tie all of this together... There is a deep and spiritual and mysterious one fleshness that happens in marriage. But to agree happens simply through sex. And this deep and mysterious and spiritual one fleshness is uniquely threatened, though not necessarily destroyed forever, by adultery. And by this I mean that many couples push through infidelity, even years of infidelity, and find a renewed and redeemed one fleshness on the other side, which again is an amazing picture of the beauty of the forgiveness and faithfulness and committed love of God towards the church. Um, God, throughout the Bible, actually uses our understanding and our emotional uh, upheaval that we have around adultery to help us understand our relationship to him and his love for us. He, he uses adultery all throughout the Bible to help us understand the seriousness of spiritual adultery, of our rejecting our creator. And then he presents himself as one who pursues 
and rescues and purifies a people who have rejected their true husband and given themselves to many lovers. The the wonder that Scripture would have us be in awe at isn't that we are so worthy and so lovely of God's love, but that he loves us still. That he loves us like a faithful husband loves an adulterous wife, or like a faithful wife loves an adulterous husband. Now, it is tempting and common to only to think about God's words about sexuality only in a negative sense. What does God say I must not do? What are the boundaries? What are the rules? What are the warnings? But the big idea is, in fact, positive, and that is glorify God with your body. Glorify God with, with all that you are, including your body. And this is where Paul goes in 1 Corinthians 6, a little later in the passage. He says, flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you are bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. The, the point is not keep yourselves from these things, don't do these things so that God will love you. Be morally pure and righteous and, and holy so that God will love and accept you. No, this is written to the church. This is written to Christians to tell them what a life of one who graciously saved by God and empowered by the Spirit is to increasingly look like. Because you have been bought with the price of the costly Son of God, because God has loved you and showered compassion on you, because he has already washed you, cleansed you of all of your sin and guilt, because nothing can tarnish his affection for you, and because his commands are good and because he is completely worthy, live your life for the glory and pleasure and delight of God. Honor him with your body, all that you are. And if you feel too unworthy to do that, if you feel like you've gone too far, like you've hurt too many people, you've rejected and turned from God too many times, that's exactly the point. You have. We all have. We, we are. Such were some of you but you were washed. I mean, just Matt, think about that term, washed. Isn't that a wonderful word? It means you were no longer dirty or marred or used property, no longer what you have done or what has been done to you. God's heart is to sufficiently deal with all of our sin, shame, and guilt, to rid us of the sense that what we have done or what has been done to us defines us. And he does this as we come to him, as we bring all of our sin, shame, and guilt to him, confess that we cannot bear the weight of them, as 
We embrace Jesus on the cross, his death in our place, by which our sin and guilt is sufficiently condemned and cast as far as the east is from the west. So, faithfulness in marriage is one option for glorifying God in our bodies, in our sexuality. But there is another, and that is chastity or abstinence in singleness. And both Matthew 19 and 1 Corinthians 6, both of these passages immediately go on to talk about singleness, um, to show that singleness is another way to be faithful to God in our bodies and our sexuality. In Matthew 19, Jesus says that there are some who have renounced marriage, called eunuchs, for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. So for the purpose of God's kingdom work, for the purpose of giving glory to God, serving him and his people, some people choose not to get married, or some people don't get married, and this is a good thing. In 1 Corinthians uh, 6, Paul expresses a wish that all were single like himself, but then he says that each has his own gift from God, and when he, he says this, each has his own gift from God, and then refers to both um, marriage and singleness, he's using the same term that we use for spiritual gifts. There is a spiritual gift, a grace, a gift of God's grace in both marriage and singleness. And so if you are married, your marriage ought to be a gift and is a gift of grace, a spiritual gift, a way that you can glorify God and serve others, including your spouse. If you are single, likewise, your singleness is a gift of God's grace, a spiritual gift that, that you can use to glorify God and serve others. There is a tendency in our day to, well, for one, to, to downplay the, the value and the, and the significance of singleness, even in the church. But along with this, there's a tendency to think that to be fully human is to experience sex. Uh, one author notes that there is a movie titled The 40-Year-Old Virgin, and we don't need to be told that it's a comedy. We understand instinctively that that's meant to be a comedy because in our world, it is ridiculous that an individual at that age would be a virgin, almost like that they're not fully human, not fully living fully functioning as a human being. But that's not true. Jesus was fully human, fully functioned as a human being, never had sex. Author Dennis Hollinger writes, life without sexual intimacy in marriage is not a deficient life. Rather, life without intimacy with God in Christ is, defi is deficient. And this is extremely helpful in properly evaluating singleness. Because if identity and happiness, if identity and happiness are in fact connected to sex, then the Christian teaching that sex is meant only for marriage, for heterosexual, monogamous marriages, is indeed a very tough, even unjust teaching. But if identity and happiness are not dependent on sex, are actually not dependent on fulfilling every desire we have, as we talked about last week, then chaste singleness is an equally faithful, but more than that, equally satisfying and God-glorifying way to live. 
And in the church, this means that, for one, we need to be careful about how we, how our words and our actions, what we are communicating about singleness. Are we always trying to set singles up? Is our expectation that every single person is eventually going to get married? And that if not, that they are somehow, um, that's not normal. That's not faithful. Are we devaluing this equally biblical and faithful option, the option of both Paul and Jesus? There's a spiritual gift of singleness. It may last for short periods of times. It may last be life, lifelong. And we as a church benefit from having both married people and single people as active parts in the church. This also helps us view issues of homosexuality and the struggles that some experience with same-sex attraction. If the goal is faithfulness in all areas, glorifying God in all areas of our lives, including our sexuality, this means the goal isn't heterosexual marriage. The goal for ourselves isn't heterosexual marriage. The goal for our children as they grow up isn't heterosexual marriage. It is faithfulness. Furthermore, the goal for those experiencing same-sex attraction, in this life at least, isn't even what we might call heterosexuality, just changing the nature of their desires and temptations or weaknesses, as if heterosexual sin and lust was somehow better than homosexual sin and lust. They're both sin. Again, the goal is glorifying God with our bodies which we do through either faithfulness in heterosexual monogamous marriage or chastity in singleness. And some who experience same-sex attraction may be able to enter into a heterosexual marriage. Some may not. Some may find that too difficult. But we don't need to create a third option of same-sex marriage for faithfulness and fulfillment and human thriving. Now, some will argue, and perhaps you may feel, that this is asking a lot. This seems unjust for those who deal with same-sex attraction. Certainly, this is a unique struggle, and I think we all have something to learn from those who commit to God's ideal in this situation. And there have been many books by, written by people um, who this is their struggle, and they have some wonderful things to say about living faithfully um, in the midst of, uh, you know, I think something akin to Paul's thorn in the flesh. But the truth is that everyone has to give up an identity in coming to Christ. Everyone has to put to death and continue to put to death by God's power deep-seated desires. Coming to Christ is an entire change of authority in your life, is an entire change of lordship. You give up the reins to your life and you submit to Jesus, whatever the cost. And the testimony of the scriptures from front and back is that the cost is worth it. Right? The, like the buried treasure, the, the lost coin, these, these images throughout the Bible that gaining Christ and the kingdom of God is worth losing everything else. And that's true, and that must be true for 
all of us. We have to be willing to lose everything to come to Christ. Is it hot in me or in here, or is that just me? It feels hot in here. The last two weeks, I've ended by drawing out some specific applications. Today, I just have one that I want to make, having looked at this. Um, the church in our day has a reputation for being pro-family, and certainly there are many good aspects to this. The Bible certainly um, speaks positively of family in many uh, ways. But to the degree that we present marriage and family as true faithfulness, as the normal way, as somehow, and singleness as somehow less faithful and abnormal, we go against the Bible and we can do a lot of harm in the church. While the Bible is pro-family, it is even more so pro-church family. And some of what the Bible says and some of what Jesus say are actually quite offensive to our pro-familiness. Um, you can think of the time when Jesus' family comes to him and says, we want to talk to you. And his disciples come and tell him, and Jesus says, who is my family? Like, these, these people, these my disciples, whoever does the will of God is my brother and sister and mother. Wesley Hill writes, the New Testament views the church rather than marriage as the primary place where human love is best expressed and experienced. So in the church, we find that we have brothers and sisters and mothers and fathers and daughters and sons. We, we learn what it is like to, um, to commit in love and to forgive and to bear with to share joys and sorrows, to extend grace, to persevere with one another. Of course, we do this in our immediate families as well. We do this in our nuclear families, but those families are a part, are meant to be a part of this family. And one aspect of this that we need to pursue and allow for and encourage is deep and intimate same-sex relationships and not think that they're weird, especially among men. Women tend to do a little bit better job at this. We men are not as great at it. Um, and it's not because we don't know it's valuable. It's not because we haven't tasted the, the value of having deep relationships with one, another, with one another. We all know that it would be a benefit to our lives and to our families if we're married to have deep and meaningful relationships with one another. And so if we're married, our wife is not meant to be the only real and fruitful relationship we have, which can sometimes be the case. There are guys in the church that need us, and we need them. And it kind of makes sense, though. We live in a culture that is very, very extremely individualistic. And then we tend to live in a Christian culture that is very, very family-focused. And if you put these two together, the result is a tendency to greatly devalue anything outside of that, including the church. We're individuals, maybe we're a part of family. Isn't that enough? Or when we do approach the church or think about the church, it's merely about what it does for us. 
we come with very consumeristic ideas. What is the church going to do for me? We're consumers of church. Well, God's word challenges these assumptions. We need the church. The church needs us. We need this family. It needs us. We have something to offer to it. It has, the people in it have something to offer to us. God intends for us to commit to a specific local body of believers that we know, that we see, that we can live life with and actually love. Um, And he means for this to be a powerful means of his grace and growth and work in our lives. One of the primary ways, all of the one another's in scripture, that God means for us to, to grow up in our faith. May this be true of us. May we push past our comfort zones and be willing to, as Dietrich Bonhoeffer says, not just have this ideal of what community looks like, but actually just simply follow God's commands and pursue it. Not wait for it to happen, but be a part of pursuing it, pursuing one another. Let's pray.